0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, less than two weeks now for the Ontario election, and the strategy for Ford's PCs seems to be hide from the press. So says Steve Pakin, host of the Agenda on TVO. He's going to join us to talk about that. The Canadian government has officially banned Huawei and ZTE from the country's 5G network. Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and the Macdonald-Laurie Institute, will join us and untangle some of that mess. And... We're also going to take a look at the midterm primaries in the United States this past week and the impact it could be having on the elections at the end of the year. All coming up on the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today
1: on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: We had the uh, leaders debate that uh, happened, of course, earlier this week uh, with a few surprises in that. And uh, an interesting uh, piece that appears on the the TVO uh, website, TVO.org, uh, written by our next guest, and, and it's about the, the techniques that are being used by one of the political parties in this election that, that I had talked about earlier this week and a lot of people have noticed right now. Uh, and that's, uh, well, one of the frustrating things. I think uh, he calls a peekaboo election. Uh, Steve Paikin is our next guest. Of course, he is the host of The Agenda with Steve Paikin on TVO and, of course, a part-time political debate moderator. i uh, when to squeeze that time in, too. Steve, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Bill, I love the way that you always play my theme song, the Dropkick Murphys from our favorite <laughs> baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. And I should just let you know, I hope you can hear me okay, because I'm about seven hours north of you right now in um, Northern Ontario. I just left Espanola. I'm on Highway 6 going south. And, um, and if I could go over water, I guess I could just take Highway 6 right down Lake Huron and end up on Upper James in Hamilton. But for the moment, uh, it's clear sailing, so fire away.
0: Well, great. Yeah, and you're sounding uh, bright and clear, so we're fine here, too. This is your annual uh, trek up to the uh, Great White North in the wilderness, isn't it?
2: You got it. Yep. Manitoulin Island is uh, the eventual destination.
0: Good. Well, listen, let's talk a little bit early this week. By the way, great job by you and Althea moderating the debate. Uh, as I, you and I have talked about, sometimes that can be like herding cats, but uh, it, it we got the message, and, and I think you guys did a great job of making sure these guys stayed on message but the piece you wrote steve as something that i think is bothering an awful lot of people right now uh you call it peekaboo election uh how bad it is for democracy give me your your thoughts on that
2: well the gist of the piece i wrote bill is that you know there is a certain amount of of public activity that all candidates and all parties should do in order to participate in our democracy i just happen to believe that and i think the voters believe that as well And we are seeing at the moment what you might call a classic frontrunners campaign being operated by the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, which is to say they've been in first place in the polls for many, many months now. I don't think there's been a single poll that's come out in the last six months that has shown nothing in first place. And as a result, they are taking a strategy of do as little as possible, put our leader out there as little as possible, have our local candidates do as little as possible in terms of, um, you know, showing up for all candidates' debates in the riding and that kind of thing, uh, do as few interviews as possible, uh, and and usually this means none. And as a result, uh, I think the voters are being deprived of an opportunity to uh, to experience an election campaign the way they should. Uh, I don't pretend uh, in the past that uh, all front-running governments uh, wanted to be out there uh, doing interviews, participating in all candidates' debates, et cetera, et cetera. But they did. And they did it because everybody, first of all, because nobody wanted to be called a chicken. Right. And you, uh-huh. uh, so that was one thing. You didn't want to be embarrassed by being called a chicken and afraid to show up to debates or afraid to give interviews. And number two, there was an understanding that in order to be a participating party in a democracy, there was a bare minimum amount you had to do. And those times, I, I regret, seem to no longer be with us.
0: There's, a, I guess, a couple of extremely reasons for this as well, quite aside from, as you say, it's a strategy that was used before by the, by the Harper government, actually, for many, many years during their reign up in Ottawa. Uh, but... Uh, what else has developed, I guess, Steve, in the last few years, especially, is is an enormous uh, distrust and distaste of the media. You know, fake news, fake news. We're not putting our people out there because they're just going to go, they going to play gotcha with our, our candidates. Uh, and I don't think there's any substance to that. But I mean, you know, you keep repeating that narrative, and all of a sudden people start to believe it and say, yeah, that's a smart strategy. Stay away from those people.
2: Yes. And I think it's an unfortunate development. Um, I have a certain understanding. And you mentioned Stephen Harper, and it is true. Uh, When Stephen Harper was prime minister, and ironically enough, the guy who used to run Stephen Harper's campaigns is now running Doug Ford's campaigns. That's Corey tonight. He's taking the same strategy today that he did with Stephen Harper. But you may remember, Mr. Harper used to do press conferences during election campaigns. He'd take five questions, and that was it. And then he was out of there. And Mr. Ford, I won't say he's that bad. Mr. Ford does usually does an event every day. He was in Hamilton, as you know, just the other day. He usually yep. does an event every day. And and then he'll take roughly 10 minutes of questions from journalists. And then that's it. He's out. Stephen Del Duca, conversely, for the liberals, uh, will take, uh, I know the day his platform dropped, he took questions for 70 minutes. And not only, you know how we got into this unfortunate habit of COVID protocols, where it's been one question, one follow-up to journalists, well, Del Duca is now in a position where he's letting journalists ask as many follow-ups as they want. I think this is good for democracy. Uh, Andrea Horvath is the same. She's also, when she does her events, uh, and obviously we wish her well dealing with the COVID she's dealing with right now, uh, when she does her events, she takes multiple questions for uh, for half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever, from journalists as well. I can tell you, Harper wasn't the guy who invented this. The first guy who did this, in my recollection, was Pierre Trudeau 40 years ago, 40-plus years ago, uh, when he came back out of retirement. Remember, he retired in 19- after losing that 1979 election to Joe Clark. He mm-hmm. came back out of retirement, and the liberals did a real peekaboo campaign back then. They wouldn't let Mr. Trudeau uh, do press conferences. He wasn't doing interviews. And he peekabooed his way all the way to the 1980 majority government. So, uh, you, you know, this is not me picking on Tories. This is me picking on people who I don't think have the voters interests at heart they have their own interests at heart
0: and and as you say as much as as we may you know be frustrated by this uh it does work uh it it worked for for pat it worked for harper and it's worked for other politicians as well. well
2: hang on bill i'm going to say it can work but it doesn't always work and i remember in 1985 and i bet you do too bill davis had retired frank miller took over as leader of the pc party of ontario with a 25-point lead over his competition, which at the time was David Peterson and Bob Ray. And Mr. Miller made the very incorrect, as it turns out, decision that he didn't want to do a leader's debate, that he was going to sit on his big lead and he wouldn't take the risk. He was given that advice by his people. And, you know, Mr. Miller should have rejected the advice because in not doing the leader's debate and doing that year's version of the peekaboo campaign, The public had got to a point where there was an expectation that their leaders would do a a debate. And when Mr. Miller refused to, his numbers started to fall. And they did the same kind of peekaboo campaign. You know, the liberals and new Democrats were out there doing three, four and five events a day. Mr. Miller would do one event a day. Not much media availability. And eventually the wheels came off the wagon. And as we know, the Tory 42 year long Tory dynasty therefore ended. So, yes, it works but sometimes you can just piss off the voters a little bit too much by doing that. And they'll take out their revenge on you.
0: Are the voters even paying attention? I mean, a lot of the polls I've read over the last couple of weeks, Steve, as you say, it's, it's consistently been a, a significant lead. Uh, you know, maybe the worst case scenario is a comfortable lead uh, for Ford and, and the PCs. Uh, but I, I'm getting the sense that a lot of us are just not engaged. I don't know. I'm not going to say it's because of the playoffs or anything. I just, traditionally, it's usually the last two weeks of the campaign that people usually perk up and say, "What's going on here?"
2: Yeah, I, I think there is actually a, a, a huge uptick in in engagement right now, and I base that on the fact that uh, you're, you're absolutely right. First couple of weeks of any election campaign, the voters are not particularly engaged, but then usually something happens about halfway through, and you can usually time it to the leaders' debate. Usually, yeah. people start to say when the leaders' debate happens. Okay. I've ignored this campaign for now, but I guess I can take an hour and a half out of my life and watch this leaders' debate. The issues are, it'll give me some sense of the leaders that are on offer, and uh, and that's when my engagement will pick up. And that happened, Bill. We have the numbers in. Two million people watched that leaders' debate, which is a great number. Uh, it's a very large number. You know, the, the debate was shown uh, on numerous television stations. Uh, the 2 million is just the TV number. It doesn't include radio. It doesn't include online. So we know that more than 2 million people, uh, if you take all platforms into account, watch this debate. And that shows a level of civic engagement that's very encouraging. And as you point out off the top, with less than two weeks to go, uh, I think we're going to see more people paying attention. Now, that doesn't mean the polls will move. People may be content with where things are at. But at least they're engaged and starting to think about the issues and the leaders a lot more.
0: But on that point, uh, you know, now that they're into the home stretch, uh, we got the the news as you just mentioned: uh, Andrew Horvath and Mike Schreiner are both testing positive. Uh, how's that going to? I thought Shriner had a very good outing in the, in the debate. He did very well. Uh, Andrea Horvath still, ha, you know, he, they're the official opposition, at least when the, the legislature was dissolved. And she obviously has ambitions of overtaking Ford and becoming the premier of this province. Uh, they're pretty much on the sidelines during this home stretch. How's that going to impact the election?
2: Well, they're on the sidelines, but they're not. I mean, yeah. on the one hand, they are doing events virtually. But on the other hand, I mean, as anybody who's done Zoom, calls over the last two years will know it's not the same and in terms of trying to make that connection and make that impact with the voters uh i'm sorry you you can have a great campaign event but when you're piping in your leader via zoom as unfortunately Ms. horvath and mr schreiner are having to do uh the last couple of days and who knows how many days into the future depending on how long their period of isolation is going to last that just doesn't i mean it's just not the same and I can think, uh, you know, we're talking about a, a Hamilton-based leader right now on a Hamilton radio station, so let me focus on Andrea Horvath here. Sure. She had plans to go up to Sault Ste. Marie yesterday, and, and, and she couldn't go. And that is a real hardship for her campaign, because let's remember, the Conservatives won Sault Ste. Marie four years ago by, I think, about 400 votes. And, you, you I mean, you know that the NDP had that, at the beginning of the campaign, had that riding targeted. As a possible pickup for them, and the fact that the leader couldn't go to the riding, uh, you know, has got to be a huge disappointment for them. Similarly, uh, you know, Miss horvath was going to go to Thunder Bay yesterday as well, do a tour in the north, do a photo walk with Indigenous groups. Uh, you, you know, they have one, they had one seat in the last Parliament in Thunder Bay. There's two seats there. They had their designs on the other seat and had every reason to expect that they could pick it up because the former sitting member a guy by the name of Michael Gravel, who'd been there since, I think, 1995 For the Liberals. He's not running again. So it's an open seat. And again, Gravel won last time by fewer than a thousand votes. So again, the NDP thought there's one we can pick up. And Andrew Horvath couldn't go to the riding and make that connection and make that that pitch to voters. So, you know, do we know for a fact what the impact of her being on the shelf for COVID will be? No, we don't. But you've got to imagine that the NDP campaign isn't happy about it.
0: No, oh, exactly. And and to Schreiner's point, too, um, I think Monday, that was the first time a lot of people in Ontario got to see and hear Mike Schreiner. And and I there are no illusions there, Steve. He's not going to form government after the election. Uh, but he was hoping, and I know he's talked to you about this, too, of uh, picking up a few seats. The interview you did with him on your show uh, just a week or so ago, he, he was pretty optimistic that two, three, four seats, maybe. Uh, but... He, Pressing the flesh is, is much better than, than virtual stuff, and I just wonder if that that whole attitude and that whole dream of his has gone up in smoke now too.
2: Well, we can't say it's gone up in smoke because, as you you know, you rightly point out, there's still two weeks to go, and you know, he's not going to be sidelined by COVID uh, for the whole thing. Uh, if he's, I guess, if I can put it this way, if he's fortunate enough to get the Omicron variant, that'll be sniffles for two, for you know two or three days, and then he'll be able to get back out there. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I think he's pretty safe in Guelph to retake the seat that he won yeah. last time for the first time. But, he, he, I mean, he said this in the leaders' debate. He said, you know, my candidate, my deputy leader, Diane Sachs, is running in University Rosedale. Give her a look. Uh, Matt Richter is running for the Green Party, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, Perry Sound, Muskoka. And for the first time ever, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation endorsed a Green candidate. Uh, the OSSTF endorsed both Schreiner in Guelph and Richter in Perrystown Muskoka. So you know that Mr. Schreiner was feeling that he had a lot of wind in his sails uh, in terms of uh, those two seats, and maybe University Rosedale as a third. And yes, unfortunately, um, now fortunately for him, he actually managed to get a trip into Perrystown Muskoka. I think the day before, uh, the, the day before uh, he came down with COVID. So he, he potentially got some good work done there for his campaign. Uh, but again, you're right. Being on the sidelines for the next three days isn't going to help.
0: Well, it's uh, going to be fascinating. The home stretch is, uh, is when, as you say, people start paying attention and and the big push is on. Uh, and well, who knows how that's going to impact election night. Steve, uh, thank you so much for taking some time with us on the way up to uh, the island. Uh, enjoy the holiday. You've earned it. It's been a, a really busy a few weeks for you. And uh, we always participate as much as we can, but we always want to see what the what's happening. And you are the guy, uh, whether it's debates or the interviews with the leaders that you've had over the last little while, that shed some light on it, and especially since some of them don't show up for debates, as you mentioned in the piece. By the way, if they want to read that, uh, you can go to the Web page there at uh, uh, www.tvo.org slash article. And it's uh, right there for you. Thanks again, Steve. Have a happy holiday and we'll talk to you again soon. Back
2: at you, Bill. Many thanks and great to talk to you
0: take care steve pagan of course from uh, tbo and the host of the agenda the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml candidates formally banned china's huawei and zte from 5g network technology in this country uh And like I say, there's a number of factors that are coming into play here and a number of concerns about the ramifications of this decision, especially the reaction from the Chinese government. Joining us to talk about this is Charles Burton. Charles is a senior fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Uh, Charles, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Let me ask you right up front, without trying to sound too flippant, what took them so long? Uh, There seemed to be a sense of inevitability to this.
3: Well, I think uh, certainly the public felt that it was a very bad idea to have a, a Chinese military associated company uh, controlling Canada's 5G technology. You know, that that kind of technology is is really pervasive. We're talking about autonomous vehicles. We're talking about remote surgeries. You know, we're talking about control of water and electricity through this remarkable uh, new technology. Um the government seems to to have a lot of um, uh, sympathy with the concerns of of China and Canada, and I think that there are a number of politicians who uh, may have some conflict of interest. You you remember when uh, Mr. Charrette was speaking uh, on yeah. behalf of Huawei, and then we found out that uh, from what we hear, he had managed to negotiate a seventy thousand dollar a month. Um, um, uh, uh retainer from them at least that's what uh that's what's on the internet i but we do know he was receiving money whether it was that much or not mm-hmm. i can't say so you know there was a reluctance but uh two things have happened i mean one is that uh that the chinese government backed off on their um refusal to take Canadian canola seeds, an important agricultural commodity export to China. Uh, they would made up a, a false claim that our canola seeds in the dockage, the non-seed portion contained contaminants and therefore were unacceptable for import. But of course our other canola seed customers thought that we had a fine product with no problems. It was just about to come up before a, a WTO arbitration that China would have lost. So they you know, they backed off and the canola seeds thing was settled. The other is, of course, that we're getting a better notion of the nature of the Chinese regime because of their uh, support for Russia in, in Ukraine. And I think that this is causing us to realize that we can't have trusting relations with a regime like China. And so we we have started uh, in the last budget to to try and reduce our dependence on uh critical minerals from Chinese controlled sources so that they can't use economic coercion over us with regard to, you know, high tech that requires those critical minerals. And I think the Huawei decision is part and parcel of of this. And I think that we'll probably see more attempts to secure our supply chains and ensure our security away from from the control of an autocratic regime that that is working counter to Canada's liberal democratic uh, purposes and everything that makes this a great country to live in. Uh,
0: Those of us who maybe you only had a cursory knowledge of this of course uh, or those that had expertise in this uh, I think shared uh, the emotional feeling anyway when the two Michaels were released that okay fine Shut them out right now, uh, and I'm Charles. There had to be immense pressure from our our, our partners in the Five Eyes and uh, and and other Western countries uh, who've already made their decisions. The United States certainly has uh, Boris Johnson in the UK. Actually, was willing to open the door a little bit and then changed his mind due to public pressure. Uh, was the pressure on the Canadian government immense at that stage to do something about it right then and there?
3: Well, I, I should think so. I mean, you know, the Americans were were saying quite baldly that they wouldn't be able to confidently share intelligence with us if we had our communications um, with the Huawei 5G, because, you know, there's just the possibility that the Chinese government could direct Huawei to, um, you know, download databases or provide information on critical infrastructure, which could be very uh, strategically important for China. And so I think that I, I would have liked to have seen this decision made very explicitly much earlier not you know at the end of a week uh when when it won't really be uh, subject to as much uh, discussion in parliament as i think it deserves but um you know the decision's been made it looks like a good decision there there's still some uh questions about exactly what the enabling and legislation will imply but i think that the government's got the message that the Canadian people just will not put up with the idea of us not uh, securing our telecommunications networks. And, you know, and the the Canadian companies that really like Huawei kit, because it's it's sold at a much more reasonable price than than Ericsson, Nokia and, and Samsung equivalents, you know, we'll have to uh, bite the bullet on it. I think the fact that the government delayed the decision so long has been to the disadvantage of of companies like Bell and Telus that have been continuing to install Huawei equipment, um, you know, quietly in the background, uh, uh, hoping that the decision would not be what it is.
0: How dependent are we uh, on that equipment? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, maybe a lot of people are not aware of that. I mean, Huawei still has a a pretty significant foothold in the in the Canadian telecom telecommunications industry. Uh, as you say, maybe not as a player, but at least as a as a as a contributor and as a supplier in many things like this.
3: Well, in terms of our three G and four G technology, um, Bell, Telus, and Sasktel, and some others are pretty much entirely Huawei. Um, it's only Rogers, which uh, has been relying on the Ericsson equipment, because the Huawei stuff was was more reasonably priced. And you know, the mandate for a telecommunications company is to provide the best cell service to its customers at the best price. And you know that that meant that Huawei hardware and software solutions. Uh, where what was working for them, you know, telecommunications companies don't have a mandate to protect uh, national security. They have a mandate to generate profits for their uh, for their shareholders. So, you know, from that point of view, we have a lot of Huawei uh, 4G, and the government will be requiring that that be pulled out. I think by 2027, according to the press release. Um, right now, there is some um, 5G which is put on top of the Huawei. 4g but but there's no standalone 5g which is huawei in canada at this time so you know i I mean i could see the argument that that those companies could make that the government should be compensating them for their losses and if the government does not compensate them for for the losses of having to to reinstall major installations of hardware and software of course canadian cell phone rates will be even more expensive than they are now
0: well, that's a chilling thought. <laughs> uh, given that we're also one of the most expensive in the world as we sit here right now today, was which is that one of the reasons for the, the delay? You think, Charles? The, the the major companies you just talked about are not without political influence, uh, and, and they saw this coming, I'm sure, and and probably said, "Hey, you know, what about our investment in this already?" And and while we got the answer yesterday, when the innovation minister Champagne basically said, "No, you're not going to get compensated," uh, that's going to be a significant cost to these companies.
3: I think that, you know, as you say, um, companies that have um, important and lucrative relationships with Chinese communist business networks do have influence with the prime minister's office. You know, they, I mean, it's natural, they, 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 uh, you know, they employ a lot of people and they're important to our economic development. So I think in addition to the, the telecoms who obviously would prefer to be using the Chinese equipment because of the cost factor. Uh, There are also other companies who are worried about uh, Chinese regime retaliation uh, over uh, our, you know, rebuking the the Chinese regime for its outrageous demand that we install, you know, Chinese equipment into our telecommunications, giving them all sorts of potential uh, advantages. So, you know, I, I think that there is a significant what one might call China lobby that that does have a lot of influence in canada and i think that that is you know explains a lot in terms of how the government is characterizing this and how you really can't get the 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 minister to to say the word that that we have indications that there's a genuine security threat from from huawei he simply sort of steers around the thing uh, trying to um, avoid provoking the Chinese government to the extent possible, but you know, I think because of their own internal regime imperatives, the Chinese communists will will have to make some gesture of of um, retaliation or economic coercion. I don't think there's any possibility of reversing the decision, but um, you know, they 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 want Canada to be in its in our subordinate place and to understand that if we don't do what the Chinese communists want, it's going to cost us and I think you know in terms of the larger question that I talked about earlier we really have to get ourselves out of uh situations where we are subject to economic coercion by that regime we need to we need to have different supply chains that uh, don't give the, that regime the opportunity to try and and punish us economically if we don't do what they want politically
0: What can we expect? And I guess we're crystal balling just a little bit here, Charles. There could be trade sanctions. There can be, as I say, canola oil uh, embargoes, all sorts of things that can go on. Uh, But there could be a human cost. There's still a lot of Canadians working over in mainland China in various capacities. And uh, the last time our government made a decision that they didn't like, the two Michaels were were the victims of that. that. That went on for a thousand days.
3: Yeah, I mean that is the is the penultimate nightmare that some Canadian, you know, teaching English in China, or uh, engaged in regular uh, business like sale of Canadian agricultural commodities, is arrested on false charges of spying or anything else. You know, it's quite within the 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 toolbook of that regime to accuse an innocent businessman of of um, embezzlement or or sexual misconduct as a way to leverage them to transfer their Canadian proprietary technologies over to the Chinese state. So, you know, I like I I think I constantly underestimate how bad that regime could be. You know, I never imagined that they would engage in policies of genocide in in the in the Uyghur regions and they have, and I really wouldn't have thought that they would have just arbitrarily picked up Coverkins favor to to try and send a political message to our government and they did and so with this thing you know if we do see some some ugly consequences um you know we we just have to to recognize that that's that's what you get when you deal with china
0: uh, and and that uh, the it- well, I guess the travel advisory has been in effect for quite some time right now. So is the is the message from our federal government to those uh, industrial folks or whoever may be over there, or even, as you say, could be teachers, uh, you're going in there at your own risk?
3: Well, I think that it's pretty clear that, you know, if you're going to do business in China, you have to factor in the possibility of these sorts of consequences, whether it's, uh, you know, that your your chief executive uh, gets arrested or, or is subject to some sort of honeypot scheme, or that they will arbitrarily impose taxes and regulations to try and, and cause you to transfer your, your technology and intellectual property over to them. You know, that's, it's just a pattern that, that occurs. So if you go in, into that country, you have to, you have to recognize that there are risks in going there that wouldn't exist in going into other countries. But, you know, the, the, the larger issue is, of course, an enormous number of Canadians of ethnic Chinese origin have family there and can be subject to coercion by, by the regime threatening their family if they don't cooperate in espionage or whatever, and who want to go to China to, to visit family. And if the Chinese regime cuts off that, that access, you know, the, the, the human tragedy is enormous.
0: Uh, we've seen that, too, with the number of Canadians who are incarcerated over there. Uh, and it's not just the two Michaels, of course. Uh, yet even yesterday in their reaction, though, Charles, to the Canadian decision, uh, there was once again the, the assertion by the Chinese officials that, uh, look, this whole idea about our, uh, security being in, in, in peril is, is baseless. So we don't do that sort of thing. But do they not have a national intelligence law in China that basically says, if the government comes to a company and says, we need that information, uh, they have to give it to them. They are required by law to do so.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, before they had the law, one understood that this was the case, that, you know, it's like uh, it's like the mafia, you know, they make you an offer that you can't refuse. Mm-hmm. And so people being uh, subject to different forms of coercion or blackmail to... Uh, to, to satisfy Chinese demands to take advantage of their position and provide, you know, technologies, military technologies developed in Canada to China or other stuff like that has been, you know, well known for a long time. Now, a couple of years ago, they actually enacted a law where they codified that, which requires all Chinese citizens to to cooperate with the Chinese um, intelligence Um and security agencies if asked to, which would mean that Huawei would be subject to that kind of um, um, uh, threat. And, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty bad for everybody uh, of Chinese nationality, whether they're in China or in Canada. And I think that the Chinese government often regards canadians of chinese ethnic origin even if they are canadian passport holders and are canadian citizens as also subject to this kind of demand
0: uh where do we go from here Uh, uh, they being the government of course uh uh, huawei's out uh we still need to develop the technology we have to play catch-up to it as to what a lot of other countries are already doing now uh you mentioned Mm -hmm. scandinavia as a possible alternative
3: Well, yeah. I mean, of course, it would have been ideal if Nortel was still in existence and that Nortel was producing 5G technology and that this sensitive technology would be under Canadian control from the beginning, the middle and the end. But, you know, the story of the demise of Nortel is very controversial. And, you know, as you know, the Nortel campus, when it was abandoned and and purchased by the Department of National Defense was found to be full of um, all sorts of surveillance equipment, you know, listening devices in the walls mm-hmm. and so on. And it seems to be that Nortel may have been, um, uh, you know, subject to its collapse because of Huawei um, purloining, stealing its technology. I think that, you know, at least with the Scandinavian countries, they are, they are nations with whom we have a, uh, some sharing of intelligence and a a degree of trust and confidence that that they will not be misusing this technology to serve um, uh, insidious uh, espionage purposes. But, you know, the the best way to ensure that that foreigners are not getting our databases and critical information about our, our infrastructure is to have Canadian companies handling it.
0: Uh, Which would be the ultimate goal. The other one, too, of course, is to increase our, our, our security presence. Uh, I've talked to many CSIS agents or former CSIS agents, of course, and uh, they, they are all unanimously of the opinion, of course, that the Canadian government does not invest in uh, technology and in surveillance technology or even more so in defense of that kind of technology uh, to the point that they had. We're very reliant on the five eyes to get information about sometimes about what's going on in our country, but we get that information from other members of the five eyes.
3: Yeah, I mean we're a net consumer of intelligence, yeah. which makes it all the more significant that if the Americans carried through on their on their threat to to ease us out if we use Huawei technology, that uh, that we would really have issues at the border and elsewhere. But I mean, it's already happening. You know, they, there's a an Australia, UK, US um, consortium with regard to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know. Last I looked, uh, Canada is an Asia-Pacific nation. Britain is not. Um, you know, Canada is uh, at some points closer to, to to China than Australia is, but uh, it seems that there's a lack of trust and confidence in Canada as a reliable ally in, uh, in meeting the China challenge. And similarly with the Quad, you know, that's Australia- um, uh, U.S., Japan, South Korea. There's no Canada there. Uh, you know, I think that that it's really time for us to to face the facts that we just are not pulling our weight and we're not taking this seriously enough, and that the Canada's national interest and our security and sovereignty suffer as a result. And it's time for us to to you know reset, allocate those resources to CSIS, the RCMP, and DND. Uh, NCSE and CSE um, and, you know, try and, and make up for, well, what really amounts to decades of lost time in terms of, of doing the right thing and protecting our, our nation from malign external forces.
0: And those discussions are already ongoing, aren't they? I mean, we've heard rumblings from Washington about uh, Canada's uh, lack of interest, I guess, in being a a more solid partner with the northern regions. Uh, You know, the former president, of course, made a lot of noise about that. But the discussions about what's happening in in the Asia-Pacific area are ongoing as well, and at least maybe in diplomatic channels, if not overtly.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the thing is that we have to actually commit. And so... You know, talking is fine. And I think at one stage, our Minister uh, Jolie said that Canada's strength is as a convening power. But what we really need to be is a strength, you know, particularly up in the north with icebreakers and submarines. And that takes a lot of investment. But, you know, if Canada wants to be serious about defending the north against the Russian and Chinese threat, then we have to establish a credible presence there. And that means deep water port and and the other um things that 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 say to the world that this is Canadian sovereign territory right now the Russians are claiming that all of the resources under the Canadian continental shelf belong to Russia and I think we have to in a substantive way make it clear to them that that is nonsense that you know if it's under the Canadian continental shelf under international law that is Canadian uh, those are Canadian resources and we will defend them
0: Charles always a pleasure to have you on the program to get your perspective thanks so much for the time today
3: have a good morning.
0: You too. Charles Burton, of course, from the McDonald laurier Institute. You're
1: listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Very important topic to talk about. We already know, of course, about the massacre that occurred in Buffalo a few days ago. And, of course, uh, President Biden uh, was there a few days ago to offer his, uh, his uh, condolences to what was going on. But is that's all that's going to happen. Well, our next guest can talk about this. Uh, Brian Carum is a, a political commentator for CNN, a columnist for Salon.com and The, the Washington Diplomat, host of the podcast called Just Ask the Question. i got some questions about that question, too. Uh, and uh, always a welcome guest. He's also the author of the book, of course, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. And uh, that's available right now, of course, by uh, Prometheus Books. Brian, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days.
1: Doing well. How about yourself? Are you doing good?
0: Excellent. Excellent. A little bothered by this. You know, we were only about uh, 35, 40 miles away from Buffalo, and I, my family there spent a lot of time there, and it's it's just mind-boggling and almost surreal to see what's going on there in the last little while. Uh, but well, you write about yeah. that in the in a piece in Salon. I wanted to ask you about that before we get into the political situation with the primaries and everything, because it's a, a very poignant piece, uh, your latest uh, uh, contribution to Salon.com. Uh, Biden calls out domestic terrorism. That's important, but is it enough to shift the narrative? Uh, and you you reference a little bit of the history here, and sadly, there is a long history of mass shootings in the United States. Uh, lots of thoughts and prayers, but not a whole lot of action.
1: No, very little action. And like I said, you know what's really sad about it. I said it in the piece: is I felt safer in Ukraine during the middle of a war than I do in some uh, public areas in the United States. Um, the, you know, they're in the middle of a war, and they have fewer mass shootings than we have in the United States on any given day. I don't think a week has gone by in the U.S. Uh, without a mass shooting and I, I I would venture to say a decade. Um, well uh, the, it, I, I don't want to say
0: one stood out more than any else but the one that really I scared the hell out of me and a lot of other people was the Las Vegas shooting from a few years ago. Uh, I don't, I've only been to Vegas twice, not one of my favorite cities, but anytime you go there, there's about, there's about 8 million people on the main drag there. And some guy in a high rise just starts opening fire on the crowd. And and it was terrible. It's the worst mass shooting course in the history of the United States. And there was little to nothing by the Trump administration. They didn't even barely acknowledge it, let alone uh, suggest that maybe gun control should be a discussion or something like this. There just seems to be a, a blind spot when it comes to, to the work that needs to be done here and, and, and tying that to, to a political will to get something done.
1: Well, there is no political will to get something done. I don't know if you remember the shooting that occurred uh, where uh, congressmen and senators were practicing uh, baseball, and yeah, and yeah. A, you know, a GOP representative got shot. He shall remain nameless, but he's still come out afterwards. Uh, I won't mention his name, uh, but he, you know, they, they still won't do anything about it, and they got shot. Whose pocket are you in, and how deep are you in that pocket? That you cannot acknowledge the simple fact that we have a problem in this country, and it's you know it's not all about gun control, but by God it certainly has a lot to do with controlling access to guns for people who shouldn't have them.
0: But as you point out in the piece, uh, there are. People that are enabling this is certainly the gun industry. And I know that you know you've written and other people have written stories that maybe the NRA isn't as powerful as it once was, but they're still powerful and they still have a lot of influence over a lot of people. Well, yeah, you know why Uh,
1: they have been the NRA is an insidious little organization that's been propped up and a lot of their money comes from Russia. So one of the reasons why you have members of the GOP not wanting to step up to the plate is because they think because they take money from the NRA, they're gonna be linked to to russian money and they are it doesn't necessarily mean that they are in cahoots with russia but it does mean that uh russia has influenced their decisions and so coming forward with anything is is tantamount to uh selling yourself out and they won't do it
0: but as you mentioned in the piece uh one of those other enablers is a, a media entity that we've talked about many, many times. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, people seem to be loath to point the finger there. But, you know, if you listen to some of the commentary uh, after the Buffalo shooting, um, they're, they're cashing in on this. I mean, they're, they're riling up their base uh, with some of the commentary. Yet the Biden administration doesn't seem interested in, in actually, well, calling out those people.
1: I think what the uh, Biden administration has done is try or Biden himself has done is try to take the high road. And that's fine. If you want to take the high road, not engage with Fox and those who are are part of the problem. I mean, let's face it, when uh, um, Jim Acosta from CNN called, uh, you know, there are a certain, you know, Type of factory uh, <laughs> that he's not wrong. A B, and it's a BS factory. Yeah, Except the he BS the initials. Thank you. And and <laughs> you know and he's not wrong. And when people point out that they're part of the problem, they're not wrong. But what um, what you see Biden try to do is to try and reframe the the argument. And the Democrats are very bad at that. The um not since James Carville. You know, he wrote a book called uh, "We're Right, They're Wrong." He took the fight to them the democrats always let the republicans define the arguments and then they react to the arguments and they don't define them themselves and they don't stay on message and that's part of their problem what you see biden trying to do is to do that but he's been ineffective in doing it so far because unlike trump he's fine with not being on tv
0: 24 7. uh it's a terrible situation and and you know you just wonder what's going to happen uh, next time and you know there's going to be a next time uh, because of what's going on here uh, but as you mentioned you, you quoted in the piece of course that the new press secretary who uh, uh, Jean-Pierre who's uh, people to watch MSNBC would know her as a political commentator uh, but she seemed to intimate that that uh, you know we, we've got to get along with these people and we don't want to call them out and I, I'm not so sure that's uh, well a, a workable strategy but it seems to be the one that they're adopting for the time being anyway
1: uh, I, yeah, and like I said, the the Republicans view that as a weakness, and so they're going to double down and hit you hard. Well, is weakness, you it, though, it is a weakness, isn't
0: it, though, right? It is a weakness. Well, as, as you mentioned near the end of the piece, I mean, if you look at the things that, that Americans hold valuable right now, uh, abortion rights, for instance, uh, you know, voting rights and things of this nature, they're slowly but yep. surely being eroded by, by the Republicans-dominated legislations, and the Democrats are just saying, isn't that too bad? Well, what are you going to do about it?
1: Yeah. And they are not doing much about it. <laughs> that's the problem. And yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, the weakness comes from them, not it. I don't think it's the initial reaction of not acknowledging them because not, you know, it, that's fine. Don't mention them. However, you've got to go farther than that. The weakness is in not taking the fight to them or bringing them onto your ground and beating them to death with facts. If they just say, I don't want to engage, well, then you're absolutely right. That's weakness. If you're going to say, we're not going to engage, we're not going to mention them. Here are the real issues. Here's what we will beat to death. This is what we're going to say. Well, then, then it's a win because you've not only then taken it out of their court and taken it away from them, you, you've put it into your court and you've redefined the argument. But the Democrats are loath to do that.
0: Well, and that segues right into the other thing that we want to talk about here, and that's the influence of that uh, ultra-right-wing uh, faction, of course, in, in U.S. politics, uh, which I think reared its ugly head again this past week, of course, with the primaries uh, for the upcoming uh, midterm elections. And, and maybe one of the most worrisome areas of that, I guess, Brian, was in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, it's well, it, the simple fact of the matter is Americans have to turn out to vote. You know, more than it's between 66 and 70 percent of Americans favor a woman's right to choose. It's the most one of the most nonpartisan issues in this country. However, since you only have 50 percent of the people at best showing up to vote in this country, that gives a minority who favors uh, limiting uh, a woman's right to choose and are racist and are misogynist and are a danger to humanity themselves and the democratic process, they get a larger voice. When more than 55 or 60% show up to vote, those voices cannot be heard or they, are, or they are outvoted. If 70% of the people showed up to vote, the Republican party would almost surely cease to exist. The problem in this country is people are not involved in the process. We do a lot of griping, but we don't do a lot of action. And that has to change. And it's up to us to to get off our butts and go vote and, and to be involved in the process. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance people today are lulled into a, a, a somnambulance by you know they're they're worried about getting their kids to soccer practice and to school and they got to make the you know go to the grocery store and they got to make sure of this and they got to make sure and, and so they're taken out of the political process and they don't get involved and until we do get involved these will be continuing problems
0: well, and you get the result like you did in Pennsylvania, where, uh, yeah. you know, one of the biggest Trump advocates and acolytes, of course, uh, Doug Mastriano, uh, gets the uh, the GOP gubernatorial nod in the primaries. This this guy job. was one of the big he was one of the loudest fu- fighters, of course, Pennsylvania, was the last battleground Uh course, in the U.S. election, you know, they finally won that court challenge, and that officially put Biden over the top uh, with the the presidency. Uh, but this guy was—he was a, a vo- denier right from the get-go that it was a false election. Uh, He—I I, understand—he was actually seen at the Capitol on January 6th too. He was right in the middle of that stuff too. Uh, and, and boy, you couldn't have a more strong voice here for, to, to advocate for the Trumpian, uh, Trumpian th- philosophy that's going on right here. I, I, we knew of this guy before, Brian, but you thought, oh, he's never going to get past state senator. Well, who knows now?
1: Well, yeah, and that's what they said about Trump. We knew who he was and it was like, oh, nobody will ever vote this guy in. And, and, of course, we did because people didn't show up to vote. And when they got – all it took was, what, 57 percent of the people showing up to vote in the last election to get rid of Donald Trump. Imagine what would happen if we had a real voter turnout, 70%. It's hard in this country to, you know, we live by majority rule, but if the majority don't come out and vote, then the 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 minority rules, the, the well-motivated minority rules, and most of the time, the well-motivated minority are the extremists. And if the extremists are allowed to rule, we're all boned.
0: What's, there's some speculation, I guess, depending on which pundit you're you're reading or listening to at any given time, uh, that suggests that Trump's influence over the Republican Party is starting to wane. I, I don't know that we saw evidence of that uh, this past Tuesday.
1: I don't know if you'll see evidence. Look, Trump's influence on the Republican Party has to do with money and ability to be seen, and with your and when you know if you're with him, he will promote you. You're going to be seen with him. Your uh, profile is raised extraordinarily uh, as in Pennsylvania. But the simple fact of the matter is, is I don't believe he's ever going to run for re-election. I think he's grifting. I, I think he's much happier just taking people's money. Not a day goes by that I don't get an email from him asking me to buy a shirt, a hat, a, a t-shirt, a mask, uh, you know, uh, an ornament, a tree limb, you name it, he's out there selling it. <laughs> and he's doing that to make money. And all these people are are hooked into him because they see a, a, an avenue to a higher profile. Now, when he doesn't run and or if something else happens to him, then we'll see where the Republican Party goes. Uh, a lot of people say it's DeSantis who will take over and that uh, Trump will be a kingmaker and just give DeSantis and go. Here's the ring run with it. It remains to be seen. But all of those people are merely with Trump because it's a it's a means and an ends to money and and having a higher profile. I don't think any of them really like the guy. I've never met I've never met anyone, even his closest compadres, even his you know the closest colleagues in the stew with him. Nobody likes this guy, but it doesn't mean they won't attach themselves to him because they're in it for the same narcissistic reasons that Trump is.
0: Well, especially if, if you, you know have a long memory, and I know you. Certainly, do in, in the political realm. Uh, when he was just running in the primaries way back when, uh, you know, Ted Cruz, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, Mitch McConnell, the list is, it goes on and on. All said, This guy's an idiot. Don't pay any attention to him. But of course, as soon as he won the darn thing and became the nominee, uh, you know, they bow at his feet.
1: Yeah, because there isn't anyone in the Republican Party and there's very few people in politics in general that have any backbone.
0: Sad, sad situation and uh, (laughs) evolving situation, of course, because I get it. I know, I know. Uh, Read BrianSteffansalon.com and buy the book, for heaven's sakes. It's a a fabulous book that will give you perspective. Uh, You you can't understand what's happening now if you don't know where they came from. And, Brian, you do a great job outlining that whole argument, of course, in the book. Uh, Thanks again for the time today. Good luck with the book. Uh, And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope.
1: Sounds good. Yeah, anytime.
0: You betcha. Take care. Brian J. Caram, of course, uh, from CNN and uh, Salon.com. And, of course, uh, political commentator that you'll catch on most of the networks.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.